0: Picked up your message About the Balinese Cuts You thought I might buy Now your voice on my machine Is more alive than with you on Since your damn down hang glider Fell out of the sky Now Armand's looked all over But he can't find your cut.
2: that hypothetical specter, your dead soul. You know, sometimes you get obsessed with a song you don't want to be obsessed with, and it's like the only song you really can think of for two or three days. I've kind of been that way with this particular song. And since it's very haunting, so it would be better if I were obsessed with something a little peppier. That's you don't get to decide, really. Okay, today is ask or tell me anything. Ask or tell me anything. You can know The lines are now open. We believe 720 zero. W N P R is the number that you call. You may bring up anything that you choose uh, or nothing at all. You you may simply call as Frank Skinner, one of my one of my mentors, who doesn't know he's my mentor. He's a British comedian who hosts a weekly radio show and podcast. But they do, in fact, they, they don't take calls, but they take texts uh, and emails, I think, but mainly texts and maybe the Twitters. Um, <laughs> everyone, but he usually throws out these topics. And, and one week he said uh, the, <laughs> the call in was going to be, Why is life such a grotesque pantomime? Uh, so you can ask that. I don't know that I know the answer. 888-720-WNPR, 888 720 WNPR 888. Seven two zero nine six seven seven. 9677 Let me say a couple of other things. I do have the Mr. Carp envelopes here. They are sent to me by Mr. Karp. They are sealed. Uh, I do not know what's in them. I mean, I know that there are clips, that Mr. Carp has clipped from various publications in them. And, and I mean, they really are sealed. I really don't know what's in them. And to make it even a little bit more randomized, I have seven of them. So if you call in and ask me to open one of the Mr. Carp envelopes, then I'll ask you to pick a number between one and seven. And, and also, a reform we instituted on our most recent show is you may – we also have sort of a safe word now that says open the Mr. Carp envelopes. Uh, and, and it's either purple penguin, platypus, or pineapple. If you say any of those words, even one of them, I have to open a Mr. Carp envelope and then discuss. The whole idea of it, if it's not clear, is I then have to discuss the contents of said envelope. So, um, so there's all of that. And, oh, here's the thing. So we're, I should say a little something about how we work here. Um, So I should probably try to know something about how we work here. One of the things that we do is, you know, a lot of times we're turning around shows pretty fast. Like, you know, we are very interested right now in the queue, the the gigantic queue for Queen Elizabeth lying in state. But I mean, we're not interested in it, you know, qua it. Uh, it's more a question of we're now we're interested in cues and, and lines and, you know, what else is there to know or, or say about them. So we might be doing that show on Thursday. We were going to do show do a show about time. <laughs> we were going to do a show about time travel on Thursday. And I think what we could conceivably do is do it in a couple of weeks. One of the guests that we had is maybe unavailable because of a death in her family, but we could just do the show in two or three weeks and then run it on Thursday. Um, but we're, so anyway, we have those shows that we're kind of turning them around pretty fast. And then we have shows that we're working on for a longer time. And one of the things that we're working on right now, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, I'm really intrigued in the, with the possibility that there's going to be a larger outflow of people, particularly Gen Z and millennials, uh, who are going to decide that they don't want to spend their lives in this country that its democratic institutions are no longer functioning, that they want to be in a place with better climate change policies, even though we're all you know intrinsically connected. I mean everybody's climate po- the worst climate policy in the world affects everybody uh, as does presumably the best. Um, so but and for a, a whole bunch of other reasons that people may be I mean they've there always been expats and there always will be expats. I'm talking about something different, about, you know, sort of significant migrations, particularly under those, among those younger generations. And, of course, retirees. Also, retirees have been increasingly decided, deciding, often driven by cost of living, um, but have decided to, you know, to not retire here in the United States. There's also – I'm also interested in dual citizenship, dual citizenship and triple citizenship. I think a lot of people are seeking citizenship elsewhere too. Anyway, if any of that is you – I don't know. You could, I think Lily Tyson is going to produce the show, but you could just email me. That's the easiest. Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at ctpublic.org. All right. Here we go. Uh, I said you can ask or tell me anything. Let's find out how people interpreted that prompt. Uh, we're going to start with Tom and then Barbara and then uh, Adrian or Adrian. not sure. Uh, here's Tom. You have the first floor. Hey, Colin. How's it going? Just fine.
3: Well, why do you think this state doesn't do anything about speeders on the roads? It seems like um, are there so many bad are the are the state cops chasing so many bad gals and girls that they don't have time to to do something about the speeding? I can remember when it when it went to 65 miles an hour many many years ago, and maybe 75 degree, was, miles per hour was fast. Now, like you know, 80 is nothing on the on the, even on the, the secondary roads as well. Why well, do you think that
2: is? I know I, I don't have an answer, although I do believe that when people um, – when, when you relax a stricture, people interpret that broadly. I'll give you another example. Uh, when, I remember when Connecticut instituted Right Turn on Red. Um, And so that was good, you know, come to a full stop, look both ways, make sure that it's okay to do and all that kind of stuff. And then you take a right turn. People just started to interpret that. They they just never had to stop again ever. You know, the stop signs are completely meaningless <laughs> Meaningless, or if there could be a big sign there saying no right turn on red here, they don't care. People just started doing whatever they wanted to vis a vis stop signs. And I think probably the more that you expand and change the speed limit and make it more favorable to speeding, the more people will explore whatever that extra margin is, right? So it's 55 miles per hour, which is what it used to be. You know, the upper the upper limit was maybe 70, you know. And if you're going 80, you're just asking for trouble. Now, as you say, 80 is is sort of almost in the bubble there, kind of, you know. And and I don't know. I don't know why, you know. I mean, people do get pulled over and they get tickets. And some of the tickets are, you know, pretty big time. T- I've been ticketed for speeding, you know. I mean, not in, I don't know, 15, 17 years. But you can get it. Tack- it's not like we've suspended <laughs> enforcement. But what you're saying is... That as you're driving around, it just seems like cars are whizzing by you and nobody's doing anything, right?
3: Well, I mean, I just don't understand why. What is, I mean, is the state police so busy that this is just not something that they're concerned with?
2: I don't know. They might be more more
3: concerned with people on their phones than than speeding.
2: Which is, I don't mind if they are concerned about that. Um, Particularly, I mean, I sort of quit bicycling. I was doing a lot of cycling, and I was a uh, contributing editor at Bicycling Magazine. And I just sort of decided that, you know, you really are, if you go out on the roads these days on a bicycle, you're essentially betting that you're not going to encounter someone who is looking at his or her phone while driving. And that's increasingly a bad bet. And you are betting your life on that idea. And it's increasingly a less reliable concept. So... So I just stopped cycling entirely. Uh, Also, I got this young, strong moose of a dog who doesn't enjoy bicycling and does require a lot of exercise. It doesn't make any sense anymore for me to do exercise that doesn't involve Declan. Uh, All right. So um, we're going to move along here. 888-720-WNPR. All topics are welcome. 888-720-9677. Here is Barbara in Simsbury. Hi, Barbara. Hello. How are you? Just Fine. I have a two part question. All right. Part one
0: Uh, is what is the origin of Beyond the Pale as a phrase? I believe it could be related to the Pale of Settlement, which was that gigantic ghetto that was formed by, I think, Catherine the Great of Russia back in the Tsarist days for Jewish people. But I want that's part one. Then, number. Part two is the current war in Ukraine with the uh, aggression of Russia seems to me like a deja vu from uh, the, the late 1800s and early 1900s resulting in the Stalinist famine. And I wonder if you have any ideas about that.
2: Yeah, I think for the first one, I have to say uh, that uh, Mr. McPants, who answered your phone call, is uh, are, sent me some helpful messaging on this. Although, I really feel as though he shouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be more interesting to listen, listen to me struggle with the answer. So let, let me pretend that I didn't get that help, and, and I, I do. I would have known. I am pretty comfortable saying that it has something to do with a fence that demarcates the outer limits of something. That's what the pale is in that uh, in, in that scenario or in that usage. Uh, okay. The pale is a fence beyond which, if you go. Uh, you are now kind of in the wilder places, the places that are less Mm -hmm. settled. So, Mm -hmm. hence, beyond the pale. It's beyond the pale. So, it's beyond...
0: So, could that be related to... that? Could that definition be related to the pale as it it relates to the ghetto? I don't
2: don't know the answer to that. It it comes... Now, I am using uh, McPants here. It comes from 14th century England. The whole idea of it was, if you're inside the pale, you you enjoy the protection of the crown. And, and there's an implicit sense of this is where civilization is. Uh-huh. Uh, and then outside that, this, so I don't know. I don't know the, the answer to that. And I don't think I have a worthwhile answer to this to your second question. I mean, it's sort of an interesting parallel, but it's an imprecise parallel too, I feel like. And, and I also, I don't know, there's so many differences now and and uh, so many different ways in which, I mean, some of the ways in which it's really different is that so much of the calculations that go into our thinking about Ukraine and what are we going to do and what's he going to do and what are they going to do, you know, behind all of it is this kind of nuclear issue. Like, you know, is there something that you do which is kind of a bridge too far or beyond the pale, perhaps, from Putin's point of view uh, so that, you know, he becomes a little bit more interested in waking up his nuclear arsenal, which we don't want. And, And I also feel as though NATO is a thing that exists in a way that, you know, I mean, we didn't even have a, the League of Nations at the time that you're talking about. So, mm-hmm. and I kind of, I, you know, NATO has at least the capacity to act in a meaningful way here. Um, I mean, in some ways, all, you know, it's the, the the axiom, all wars are fought about religion or real estate, you know, and mm-hmm. I, this is a war about real estate uh, and, and, and about and national genocide. identity. Yeah. Um, yeah. So... You know, I mean, so all wars are kind of similar and all invasions are kind of similar. Um, I think this one's sort of different in different ways. And, And, you know, we have the ability... We have the physical ability to make this stop, right? We could do that. We could do it, you know, within the next few weeks. Or, as I've said before on this program, we could at minimum declare a no-fly zone and we could uh, do air-to-ground fire onto anything that originated from on the ground in Ukraine, Anyway, anything Russian that originated on the ground in Ukraine. There's a lot of things that we could do that, you know, would certainly fall within the grounds of or, or inside the pale uh, of legitimate international enforcement. And that probably wouldn't trigger a nuclear response. But to me, that's the differentiating factor. There's a lot no, of stuff. Not, we, I'm
0: not so sure about that because Putin is uh, a loose cannon mm-hmm. and you just can't uh, you don't even know what his mental state is right now.
2: Right. OK, so um, I will we'll sort of leave it there so we can get to other people <laughs> I have to say, sometimes I look at the call board and I think, oh boy, I can't wait to do all these. And sometimes I look at the call board and I think, wow, I'm not sure I'm going to have anything to say about any of this. And it's a little bit more the latter way right now, but that's fine. That's one reason we do this. All right, here's uh, Adrian, or it says Audrey, and I'm not sure yep. which is it is. Yep,
4: Adrian. Uh, Audrey, okay. Uh, thank you, Colin. Yeah. So this, this morning on NPR, there was a program about uh, education programs for people in the. In the Local marijuana industries,
2: mm-hmm.
4: and they said that okay, the people even growing marijuana are not considered cultivar to be cultivars, which means that uh, as they they are not limited, they are not excluded from forming unions the way agricultural workers are. Mm. I didn't know agricultural workers in Connecticut were forbidden from joining a union. Can
2: I didn't either, can, and I think this is on. Was this on where we live today? I didn't get to hear was well, kind of
4: one of the morning programs.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Probably where we live, new, Lucy Napathangel. That is, yeah. So, I, I don't know anything about that. I didn't know that. And, and I do feel as though we're about to enter a really, really different world with legal cannabis growing here in Connecticut. I mean, it's already happening, obviously, but uh, but I, in terms of whether they can unionize or not, or whether I, you know, what about the Cesar Chavez and the farm workers movement and all that, that would require more research. Uh, on my part. Uh, So even though it's ask or tell me anything, I won't always know the answers. All right, here we go with Nick in Enfield. Some of these look kind of hard today. I I should have studied more for this test. Here's Nick in Enfield. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, Colin.
1: Um, I have a question about uh, the electricity prices in Connecticut. Why do we keep having these rate increases and why do we have um, supply charges I mean, you know, you open up your, your electric bill and it's $400 and you're like, what happened? What did I do? And then you look at it and the supply is more than the actual amount of electricity that you use. Mm-hmm. And nobody really seems to be questioning this.
2: Well, you is are. It, yeah. It, I, this, oh, yeah. Okay. We we now have two consecutive questions that I don't know the answer to. So I don't know the answer to that. I, I could speak to a different part of it, but I don't, I, I you know, I... This is a, a question for Pura or whatever they call them. They change their name all the time, but uh, we actually do have a public utility regulatory authority. Um, yep. They sh- they certainly should be, and we have a. I think we still have a consumer council, right? And, and that's part of that person's job. I don't think it's Ellen Katz anymore, but that would be a good thing for you to do: is call the consumer state consumer council and say, "Hey, what's going on here?"
1: Yeah, and and you know, everybody, I, I think that people have just accepted now that this is the price of electricity in Connecticut. And they just kind of they kind of get the bill and they, they scream and then they pay it and then they move on to, you know, your, their next day.
2: What I don't understand about us, about all of us, including me, what I don't understand about everybody, including me, is why our response to this isn't, you know what, I'm going to go at least partly solar. You know, and there are all these incentives these days to do it. I mean, particularly depending on your income range and stuff, you really you know can, can install solar collectors and photo, photo, photovoltaics and stuff like that. You're know, like, why don't we all do that? First of all, the planet would be way better off and we can stop complaining about how much electricity costs. But I mean, exactly. I haven't done it either. So there's some there's some inertial issue here. <laughs> there's an inertial problem. It's like so much easier just to look at the bill and go, I have no idea why my bill is that number, but I'm going to pay it and I'm not going to do anything about it. So, um, but I'm talking to myself as much as I am talking to anybody. I feel dumb today. Like, I'm looking at the questions (laughs) I'm about to be asked, and I'm not sure I know. This could be like a day where I just don't know the answer to any questions, Um, which, you know, I mean, that's one for the books, right? So this is going to be another thing I don't know the answer to, but I will attempt to uh, talk about it anyway. Here's Jim from Southbury. Hi, Colin. This is not a
1: very uh, pressing issue, but it does cross my mind from time to time. I wonder why cigarettes can are only available in boxes of 20, considering how extraordinarily expensive they are, and the fact that there's so many people, and at times, myself included, who have been wanting to quit, and, my gosh, if I could have bought a pack of four cigarettes and thought, I'll just get through the day, rather than having this pack that's, you know, a, a, I just wonder why that's not the case at a time when they're selling all kinds of smokable things. It was just, I think it, the legalization's great. but. Some kind of questionable stuff in terms of the vaping. Why not? Why can't you buy four cigarettes?
2: Well, you can from somebody selling Lucy's. You just can't do that from anybody right. <laughs> Anybody actually licensed uh, and, and regulated to do it. But, yes, that's sort of the concept of Lucy's, as I understand it. I've never smoked cigarettes. But, um, but yeah, so now McPants is helping me out here, too, because I think he feels sorry for me, and I don't blame him. Huh. But um, he says that, at least according to one source, they're sold in 20s to keep them – too expensive for kids. Although, I mean, the obvious response to that would be, aren't they also too expensive for all kinds of other people, people who just don't don't have a lot of means. On the other hand, the other way that you can look at it is you know, fine. Good. I mean, it, it, there is, there's hard, it's hard to see a social good and, you know, a long term social good that would be achieved by making like I know the point you're making. What if you're trying to quit? Although you could yeah. just, you know, th- there might be ways that you could sort of solve that on your own without, you know, cigarettes having to be purchased in smaller amounts. But in general, there isn't a there isn't a public health good to be achieved by making cigarettes easier or cheaper to purchase. But I see what I you're saying, too. A-
1: I think there's a commercial interest on the part of the companies that they would want to sell in boxes of twenty. Wouldn't it be against their interest if you could buy oh just three today and maybe just one tomorrow? So
5: well, that's
2: just a thought. one thanks. thing one thing I can guarantee you is that all of these companies have very carefully researched this question uh, and they've <laughs> done trial experiments and they've done focus groups and stuff like that. And and it, it's entirely possible that you're right. Although something with highly addictive properties you know is it, it, it doesn't follow normal kinds of supply and demand economics you know the minute something's really highly addictive somebody isn't really in control of their desire for it uh, they want it more than is good for them all that kind of stuff you could throw a lot of the conventional thinking uh, about market economics out the window because it just doesn't work that way anymore people just want it and it's kind of, I guess, to Nick's point, it's a little bit like electricity. You just want it, <laughs> and you'll probably do whatever it takes to get it. All right, we'll take a little break. We'll come back. I will try to get smarter during the intervening time.
0: Just when I say, boy, we can miss, you are golden, then you do this, you say this guy is so cool, snapping his fingers like a fool, one more expensive kiss off, who do you think I am, Lord I know you're a special friend, but you don't seem to understand, we got. Growing fond of the yellow sky Growing fond of the moment Growing fond of the smell of blood Are you new in the city? Haven't you heard?
2: Oh, right. I get to pick out the music for these shows. I think, I think my producers and I one time had a, had a conversation about whether or not I'm a control freak. Or it was some term like that. And I think uh, Mr. McPants, who is mining the phones today, um, no, said that, that no except for the music because even all the other shows where I don't technically pick, pick out all the music I make a tremendous nuisance of myself and I make everybody change what they chose at the last minute and everything and I think I'm maybe not quite that bad in most other areas but I am terribly fussy about the music all right here we go here is Roy in Manchester I feel like I'm warming up I feel like you know I'm on fire with knowledge now but let's see hi Roy what's your question or comment
1: Well, I think my role is to uh, ask you a question you do know the answer to because I guess it's been discussed before, but I just missed it. But uh, I'm just wondering why we still have uh, the Lincoln penny.
2: Right, or any penny.
1: Yeah, Or any penny, yes.
2: Yeah, so you were about to say this, but it costs more to make than a penny, like 1.4 cents or something like that. And, I mean, there are other reasons – I mean, there are environmental issues about making something that is essentially not even, you know, it's not even what it's supposed to be. And meanwhile, you're using a lot of copper, you're using a lot of um, raw materials, you're using a lot of power, all kinds of stuff like that to right. mint, mint these things. I think right. there's two or three different reasons. One of them is it, we're sort of back to maybe the theme of the show today will be inertia. Some of it's inertia. It's just very difficult. To, it's so much more difficult to change something than it is to live with it that we you know, we put up with all kinds of different things. and we habituate to them more rather than forcing ourselves to do something different. So you could sort of start there and that's, you know, any organization you've ever worked in or your own life or even, you know, personal life or, you know, I mean <laughs> People going people keep going in marriages they don 't like, you know just because it would just be so hard to change so that 's sort of number one number two, there are some concerns about inflation, about what would happen if um, consumer prices got rounded up to the nickel uh, would that in fact exacerbate inflation i don 't know or down or down to the dime or down to the dime, but I mean, you, we think we know which direction mostly they 're going to go <laughs> Yeah, true, um, true. so you know, and then there 's like a lot of other stuff like people. You know, take their coin their jars of coins, and donate them to charity and stuff like that. But you know, I I think probably the world would be I'd be better. It's increasingly also because we already have inflation. You know, it's increasingly a meaningless thing. If you tried to institute it now as a new thing, it wouldn't make any sense at all that you would try to measure money that in, in such a small amount. But um, you know.
1: Yeah, so you're you're saying that the Canadians are more evolved than the Americans. Well,
2: I mean that almost goes without saying, anyway. <laughs> Although, you know what I feel? I you know, I haven't I don't think I've said this out loud. I feel like we're bad for Canada, and I think Canadians are getting more like us. And, you know, and even their political structures and their democratic institutions and stuff like that. They seem it's like they, there's another pandemic, and it's us. You know, it's like all sure. of our crap seems to be just blowing north and and well, infesting then, their polity.
1: And then after uh, the midterms, when uh, the house switches, there'll be a mass migration up above the border by right. Americans. So yeah, they even more.
2: Everybody says that every time. And one thing to remember is, last time I checked, anyway, Canada doesn't want like people like me to move there. They want they might want young families and stuff like that, but they don't. They don't necessarily—they don't necessarily want all of us. <laughs> That's another sort of very America-centric thing that we have. Oh yeah, I'm going to move—I'm going to move someplace, and they're going to be glad to have me because I'm an American person, you know. Not necessarily. <laughs> um, it might be actually fairly difficult for you to emigrate to a lot of places, uh, and Canada, I think, is especially wary of sort of burned-out, bitter old men like me moving there. All right, so I think I—I I should go to the top here. Okay, here we go. This is uh, Sarah in Deep River. Hi, Sarah. You're on the air.
4: Hi. Hi. Thanks for um, having me. Um, I I just wanted to, to, to comment that I think um, it's great that, you know, lots of different people, Black, uh, Native Americans, et cetera, are being heard. Um, I do want to voice a little bit of caution that um, there are a lot of people like myself. I'm white. Who have experienced in a younger age what they have, and so I can empathize. But then also I feel like, hey, no one's talking about me (laughs) and what I went through. So I I hope we keep it, try and keep it balanced a
2: little bit. Um, I mean, say say a little bit more about what you mean.
4: Well, um, as a a child, I was. uh, insulted by the kids, the teacher calling me lazy and stupid and, um, et cetera, et cetera. I had learned his disabilities back when I just didn't mm-hmm. understand them. And, um, through, through my life, I've had to, to struggle to, um, reach certain, certain places, um, that others haven't for various reasons. So I know what it's like to be, downtrodden? Is that a word? Yeah,
2: yeah. Ignored? Yeah, Um, all those things.
4: Yeah, I I know what it's like. Yeah. And I just want to make sure that we don't forget that there are a lot of people like me who've had those experiences and and could contribute to their support if it was was done in a way that wasn't spouting anger or things like that.
2: All right. Well, thanks for your call. I, I guess I would say about this, If I understand what's being said here, I mean, one of the things that we've started to reckon with, kind of especially in the post-George Floyd era, although in a lot of other ways, this kind of reckoning was coming one way or another, and it it had already arrived in in certain forms. But um, just ways in which things are structurally unfair for people of color or other minorities— um, including minorities that include people with learning disabilities or, or, or whatever. Uh, and how do you make it fair? How do you make it, um, you know, John Rawls's famous thought experiment is design a society that you would be willing to live in without knowing in advance what your place in that society would be. So you, you don't know as you're designing the society, whether you're going to be one of its uh, intellectual and monetary elites or The opposite of that, you know, you could be in a wheelchair. You could be a – so design a society that would work for all kinds of different people and that you wouldn't mind living in under any circumstances. And to me, that's still the best way of thinking about this. Now, I think one of the things that we do tend to do in this country is pit ourselves uh, against – pit our own disadvantages almost competitively or invidiously against other people's disadvantages. And I don't think there's any point in doing that. Like I get what the caller is saying uh on the other hand you could be black and also have learning disabilities uh you know and and be doubly cursed in a way in an unfair society what we want to do is make society fair and 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 what we want to, how we want to think about that is it's not really fair unless it's fair for everybody um and so every time that we address an individual problem, we have to think in a much larger way. You know, it's not a fair society unless it's fair for everybody. And in a way, one of the things that I think is preferable, getting back to that question of, are, is everybody gonna stay here or they're gonna try to live someplace else? Some of the Scandinavian socialist democracies or whatever we, we wanna call them, one of their big differences is that they don't see things in terms of zero sums. Um, I talked to the education minister of Finland years and years ago, and he said to me, well, the one big difference between you and us is we're, I mean, we don't even need to say no child left behind. That is priced into how we think about education. We're not really interested. We're, we're, We're as interested in the child at the bottom of the totem, totem pole as we are on the top, and we're not and we don't want i'm doing a much poorer job of explaining this than he did, but we're not interested in a system of winners or losers winners and losers uh, we want a system where everybody marches forward everybody you know gets what they need from the system and and the, the only way to do that you know is to set aside some of the elitism that that can in fact a system that's a little bit more zero sum or, or a little bit more predicated on success versus failure and and I, I think it's a disease that our entire society has to some degree or other and in some ways, I feel like it's getting worse. I think the pandemic exacerbated some of those problems. Even now, I'm sorry to blather. I'm just going to take one moment to blather here. Even now, like, you know, Biden was on television last night and he said the pandemic's over, which is kind of manifestly not true. But I know what he means. But what he means really is it's over for a group of people who have less to worry about. And, and the people, the group of people who have more to worry about would start with immunosuppressed people and would include the families of immunosuppressed people who don't want to bring disease to the immunosuppressed person. I would be in that category myself. To everybody with comorbidities and and, and sometimes multiple comorbidities. So diabetes, asthma, I mean, uh, obesity, you name it. And then everybody who's over a certain age, we can talk about the risk, the different risk groups. In some ways, the increasing risk could be said to start at 50, but it gets more intense at 65, 75. So there's all those people. Uh, Then there's the socioeconomic problem. One of the things that I'm haunted by, and I don't know if it's still true or not, but about a year or so ago, a woman I know who was working in the, I think I'll even say it was in the Simsbury school system, said that whenever the bus from Hartford came, the students who were being bussed in through Open Joy schooling or whatever, um, uh, that she would notice these kids getting off the bus and they would be double masked. You know, some of them would have face shields and masks underneath and stuff like that. And the heartbreaking implication of that was they're going back to neighborhoods where you know, Paxlovid might not be available to anybody or where people have multiple comorbidities and bad access to treatment, uh, where the outcomes are just necessarily going to be worse. I mean, racial inequality in this country is so extreme that being black is a comorbidity. You are more likely to die earlier uh, just from being black, even if you control for all other variables. So these kids you were getting off the bus. I mean, I'm imputing all – I'm inferring, I guess, all, all of this. But I think they were getting off the bus with double masks because they just were, go, were going home to lives that were significantly disadvantaged and, and where they weren't as safe as, say, you know, a reasonably affluent white kid from Simsbury. So how did I get on all this? It's, be, it's that idea anyway that we, we don't really seek fairness – so for Biden to go on television last night and say, well, the pandemic's over. Well, it, it probably is over for quote unquote over for a lot of people that he knows, so although any of those people can get long COVID you know, nobody's protected from long COVID right now. So, I mean, it really isn't over for anybody. But what he was really saying is that for maybe for, for two thirds of Americans, um, you know, it, it's it's a less dangerous disease uh, than what probably springs to mind if you say the word pandemic. But for a third, a third of the of the citizenry in the country of which he's the president, that's just not the case. If you add up all the categories that I just described, it's a really large cohort of people. And, and I think one of the things that, one of the failures I've noticed in our pandemic policy is the same failure that we perpetuate, that we just do it again and again and again, which is, We think about fairness in terms of people like us. You know, am I getting treated fairly? Is my kid getting treated fairly? Um, We don't think about fairness for everybody. Uh, And I think it's a significant American feeling. It's maybe part of our our original sin. uh, And we've never quite shaken it off. All right. So uh, I'm going to take a quick break here. We've got a lot of calls on the board. I will get to as many of them as I possibly can. So hang in there. I am back. We are back. And when I say we, I mean Kat Pastor. She's our te- technical producer today and ideally every day. Uh, and Jonathan McPence is up here screening calls and being the producer and trying to make me sound a little less stupid uh, by supplying me with, with information that is not in my head at the moment. So uh, thanks to all of that. We have uh, some fun shows coming up here. Uh, um, we're going to do a show on Wednesday about bad thinking. Like, Like, why would QAnon... Just to, to continue with the declinist theme, why would something as obviously stupid and as flawed and as crazy as QAnon start to become part of mainstream political discourse or at least one of the two major parties now has any number of prominent politicians who embrace these ideas? So you know, it's not just a politicization problem. It's bad thinking. And we're going to look at that. Like, why? how does— <laughs> What's wrong with our brains these days? It, it goes well beyond that, and there's a very interesting new book out about it. All right, so um, so lots of things to come this week, and also, of course, either cues or time travel—we don't know which. Uh, here's Ellen in Canterbury. Hi, you're on the air.
5: Hi, um, I'm calling to comment about the fact that the Hartford Current today does not have one word on the front page about the Queen's funeral. What they have, though, is a big article about how apples will be sweeter because of the drought. The Queen's funeral is estimated to be the most viewed event in human history with 4 billion people tuning in. And the Hartford Current doesn't think that's a priority story worthy of the front page.
2: I'm going to defend that decision. First of all, you just explained perfectly why they don't need to do that. Like, do you need the Hartford Courant to tell you about the Queen's funeral? It sounds like, you sound like you're pretty up to speed on it. You need something in the Hartford Courant to tell you about that? Uh, you, you think that they it's, could... Yeah. It's
5: supposed to be a newspaper. News is in the name of what the thing is. It's a newspaper. Right. So, therefore, I mean, you could say that about... Anything you could say when they cover like a big storm that hit Connecticut? What we don't know. No, we had a big storm.
2: Of course. We no, I'm going to make I'm going to make a meaningful distinction here. You know, the the Hartford Current and the other groups uh, of institutions that uh, that comprise um, the C- Connecticut journalism, Connecticut media, including the one I'm sitting in right now. We have a very specific thing that we need to do that not very many people are capable of doing, which is giving you in depth reporting on the state of Connecticut. And the Current decided sometime Time ago, particularly because its staffing has you know dropped quite a bit, and it's they they and I'm not I don't work there anymore I don't I'm not freelance I'm over at Hearst uh, newspapers now, but they clearly decided we're going to stay pretty local you know we're, we are going to report on the stuff that we can report on and that nobody else can report on, and I also feel frankly I understand that the Queen is kind of a Titanic figure. But I, I think this is now officially a grotesquely overcovered event. Uh, and and I, I'm thrilled when anybody doesn't cover it. Uh, McPants has pointed out that we took a certain amount of flack in public radio this morning because of the coverage the public radio gave, gave at a time when Puerto Rico is without power. Um, and so, I mean, I, I, I don't think that there's any particular offense committed by the Hartford Courant. I'm glad they're not covering the Queen's funeral. Look, I understand that, you know, I mean, the most remarkable thing that I've read, it was in Mark Seletsky's newsletter, is that her first prime minister and her current prime minister, or the prime minister at the time of her death, Truss, and Churchill and Truss, were born 100 years apart. I don't yeah. even know how that can be. You know, her, her first prime minister was president at like a cavalry charge in 1898 or something. Yeah. You know? I mean, that's amazing. It's amazing that she lasted that long. But it really has very few implications for the United States that she's dead. Uh, it has big implications for England and their national identity. It has big implications for the Commonwealth and some of the other places in the Caribbean that are without power right now. Do they want to continue to belong to the Commonwealth? Is she one of these things, talk about inertia, talk about the you know the, the reluctance to change anything when things are going a certain way. Well, you know, it, it could be that this is the thing that breaks the inertia and you see departures from the Commonwealth. I'd be really intrigued by that. I think that's an interesting story. But you know what? It's a big, long line and she lay in state and everybody, I mean, we know that it was just covered to death over the weekend. I, I don't, I'm glad the Hartford Courant is writing about the damn apples, you know, and that they're going to better <laughs> well, we'll have to
5: agree to disagree because i thought it was a serious omission they didn't need to devote a section to it but i think there should have been an article and i think there should have been something on the
2: front page there's a lot of international stories though that they don't put on the front page um, i mean they're just they they've become a more hyper local newspaper i think that was really one of their only options to stay relevant uh, and as i say i think information about the queen to say that it is widely available at the moment, information about the Queen and her death and her funeral, would be a, an understatement. Uh, I don't know what a you know a non-understatement would be, but that's... All right, so in that vein, let's go to Steve in Colchester. Hi, Steve.
1: Hi, how are you? Hi. Um, I'm looking at Haiti here, and it says, In Port-au-Prince, Haiti's gangs have been violently jockeying for power with civilians paying the price. In July, more than 470 people died, disappeared, were wounded in less than 10 days, the United Nations said. Some gangs have started weaponizing food supplies and water to rather residents further, increasing malnutrition. I'm just worried about them, and I don't see what the United States is doing. I don't think they're doing enough.
2: Well, I mean, you could say the same thing about Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, you know, the so-called triangle right. countries. Right. And this it's is one true. of the things that occasions immigration to our country. Um, and Biden coming into office, I don't know about Haiti, but certainly with those other nations, he... Had pledged to try to address that. I'm not. It's not clear to me how successful he's been with that. But yeah, I mean, in a lot of these places, again, I feel like Haiti might be in a slightly different category because of its colonial history. But um, but certainly with some of these other places, a lot of the dysfunction that's led to the the rise of gangs and lawlessness and you know and and dictatorial rapacious administrations has to do with American foreign policy over a period of about 50 years so we cause this big we cause these big messes uh, in these smaller southern countries and then we complain when people want to get out of them and come here uh, which uh, right. it's sort of insult to injury so'm I'm, I'm not as up right. to speed on, on Haiti and its problems there's also just a problem anyway. Even with the best intentions and a lot of resources, sometimes it's very hard for an outside power to come in and say, "Okay, we're going to fix the gang problem because the gang problem is a domestic problem and it's probably most addressable by a functioning local government or, you know, national government in the case of Haiti. And I'm not sure that us parachuting in there and trying to do something about it will necessarily work. But on the other hand, we could try to build up other aspects of their economy and infrastructure it just there's a lot of unintended consequences when you get into that. All right, so oh oh, the, let's do the queen's funeral thing, and hopefully I can get to Joanne who can explain the thing. And there's a lot of really good calls here that I'm going to miss probably because we're going to run out of time. But here we go with I think I've got Erica. Erica, you're up.
4: Hi, I just wanted to respond to the lady who was upset about the queen's funeral not being covered by the Hartford Current. Hmm. I actually applaud the Hartford Current for not covering it. There's been way too much coverage in general of the Queen's funeral as is. And I just want to point out that Connecticut actually has um, one of the highest or maybe even the highest West Indian population in the country. Um, And I think the highest Jamaican population in the country of any state. So given the impact of colonialism in um, In Jamaica and other Caribbean countries, um, yeah we, we don't really need any additional coverage of the Queen's funeral. Well
2: we might want to cover that story though talk to West Indian people around Connecticut about how they feel about the Queen, but that's going to really make that previous caller even Ellen she's going to be even more angry if, if the current does that story but I, I'm you and I are on the same page about this, and I'm sorry for cutting you off but uh, we, I want to squeeze in one or two more calls. Joanne from New Milford is about to address my vast knowledge gap about agricultural workers. You have the floor.
4: Hi, Colin. Uh, I may have the uh, answer, at least partial answer. Uh, when uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, was trying to get the uh, Social Security Act through Congress, uh, he had to make a deal with the Southern Democrats. and. They he 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 uh, promised that the um, agricultural workers and the domestic workers would not be covered by social security.
2: All right. So that's the first of all. Thank you for that answer. I'm kind of concerned about the crows that are massing outside your house right now. Okay. They they <laughs> sound not entirely friendly. <laughs> I don't want to scare you, and I don't want you to you be too worried about this. But. No, uh,
4: I, A uh, a hawk is flying over, so...
2: Okay. So the crows are warning everybody about the hawk.
5: That's
2: right. Oh, they are playing a benign role. All right. Well, see, I misjudged the crows, and that's on me. That's on me. I jumped to a conclusion about them. They're actually here to help. All right. Let's see how many more calls I can get on the air. If I can do Chris and Nadine, I'll be so happy. Hi, Chris, from Wethersfield. Hi. Uh,
5: I wanted to address uh, uh, not a fair society unless uh, fair for everyone. Mm -hmm. The givens of our society are democracy and capitalism. And on the economic side, consumer spending is 70% of the economy. So my question is, is mean testing the way we're trying to get at fairness for everyone?
2: Well, it's a, that's a large question, and, and I only have minutes to answer. I don't think it boils down to means testing, but I do believe, in the spirit of Bernie Sanders, that you know, redistribution of power, wealth, resources is kind of called for. I mean, what have we wound up with? We wound up with a situation in which each year a smaller percentage of Americans controls a larger amount of the country's wealth and resources, right? The concentration of wealth at the very top has become absurd. It's it's an oligarchy, and, and so we shouldn't feel comfortable with that anyway. I think it's sort of why— Bernie does so well with so many different people, including... I always point out that Bernie was often the second choice of Trump supporters in 2016. All right, so do I dare... OK, Nadine, I can give you 30 seconds, but I'm going to be ruthless about this.
5: Hi, don't be ruthless with me. Okay. Um, very quickly, uh, wow, this seems like so inconsequential um, compared to all the other callers, but um, if you haven't seen it already, you must see Moon Age Daydream in IMAX.
2: Ooh, in IMAX. Ooh. I haven't been to a movie theater in a really long time. Moon Age Daydream, we should say, is a documentary about David Bowie. I mean, if if, we, if it were for the IMAX part of it, I would suggest. We've been discussing what to do on the nose coming up. And at some point, I want to do the, El- the Baz Luhrmann Elvis movie. And, of course, Elvis and Bowie together. That would be a very cool show. All right. Speaking of cool shows, this one is over. Thanks to Kat. Thanks to McPants. we got to get out of here.
0: Connected.